Hey guys, what is going on? Welcome to episode number 11 of Being Famous Podcast. Of course, my name is Cliff. I am your host and producer and social media guy and the guy that also books the guest and is currently trying to find sponsors for the show. Yeah, I guess I pretty much do it all. It's all good. Hope everyone is doing well and staying safe all around the globe. If you would like more information about me and this podcast, please check out my webpage at beingfamouspodcast.com. There you can also listen to previous episodes. Facebook and Instagram are at Being Famous Podcast. And I know I say it every show, guys, but if you happen to like this podcast, please leave a comment and a rating as it helps this podcast get noticed in the algorithms. At least that's what I've been told. Now, on to episode number 11. I am excited to welcome only our second female guest to the podcast. This lady has an extensive career in the music industry and is highly trained and highly educated. She's been a member of groups like Information Society, the Golden Palominos World Party, and 10,000 Maniacs. Her studio work includes working with artists like Lloyd Cole and The Church. Being such a versatile live performer, she's also provided keyboard duties for Steve Kilby, Tom Bailey of the Thompson Twins, The Eurythmics, and Susie Sue. As a member of the Psychedelic Furs since 2002, let's welcome to the podcast all-around badass keyboardist, Calling in all the way from a little village in Bath, England, Amanda Kramer. Amanda, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for coming on the show. Hi, Cliff. Yeah, thanks for having me on the show. I really am very glad to be here this evening and looking forward to talking to you about some of the tastier musical experiences of the last few years. I am looking forward to it as well. We definitely have a lot to talk about, but Amanda, wow, Bath, England. That is a long ways from me here in Charlotte, North Carolina. Amanda, tell me a little bit about Bath and uh, where you live. Uh, Bath is a very um, kind of beautiful uh, Georgian, uh, but very middle class, fairly wealthy, really. It's not very large. There's no crime. Um, 85,000 but, you know, it's um, kind of a little bubble in a way because it is only 10 miles from Bristol, which is another wonderful city, but four times the size and you know, much more diverse population. I mean, that's where, you know, Tricky comes from and Massive Attack and, uh, you know, Portishead and um, Banksy, you know, a lot of stuff comes out of Bristol. But like Bath is like its backyard, but you sure wouldn't know it down here Sure, <laughs> in these parts. Well, you know, it's been it was a funny place to get stuck. It's been a funny place to get stuck as a foreigner during Brexit. Right. With the COVID going on. <laughs> <laughs> I hear you. So um, do you live right in the heart of Bath? Well, no, I'm two miles from the center of Bath, right next to um, Peter Gabriel's studio, Real World, all of which is about two miles from Bath. Okay, very cool. How long have you been living in the UK? I've been living in the UK since 1994. I've been here 26 years. Wow, 26 years. Do you like it over there? Yes, I, I, I love England. I do. I love the US too, but I do love England very much. Very nice. All right, Amanda, I guess let's uh, start at the beginning. Uh, tell me, how did you get involved in music? Well, I guess I've always been involved with music. I started piano at seven. So, you know, I was just the piano kid. I was the one who played at the school assemblies and summer camp and all of that stuff. I mean, all my friends from elementary school, summer camp, still think of me as the piano player. By 10, I was um, in um, preparatory division at Manhattan School of Music, 
in New York, um, studying with a wonderful pianist named Sonia Vargas. And then I was a music major in college. So I have a BA as well in music, but it's not like I think any of that's necessary. That was just my road. And, um, you know, I happened to like school, so I was lucky that way. But, um, you know, I know uh, many brilliant musicians who, you know, don't read music. I don't think any of that matters. It's just what happened to me. Where did you go to college? I started at UC Santa Cruz in California after a year in Europe. Um, for my gap year, I came to Europe and um, you see, my parents were very kind of Eurocentric anyway. Like growing up in New York, we always came to, for holidays in Europe. And then when I, by the time I was 13, they were sending me in the summers to Angers to go to French school. And when I was 15, I we came to France by with a friend all, all alone, just the two of us for the summer. And then when I was 17, I left school early and I came to Europe for two years and I studied languages, studied a semester at the Sorbonne in Paris and six months in Berlin at the Goethe Institute and um, German and did a summer in Florence at the University of Firenze and then went back to UC Santa Cruz where my godbrother was also going at the time. We had both moved out from New York and we shared a house and I was a music major, harpsichord major. I'm still in touch with my um, main teacher from UC Santa Cruz. She was also the head of the music department there. Wonderful, um, incredible musician named Linda Berman Hall, who's early music specialist and also gamelan. She lives in Bali half the year and studies gamelan and very um, open-minded. I think I, was, uh, I had a lot of great role models like her at a young age um, in 80 my stepfather died and suddenly and I, I dropped out I moved back to New York and I started playing in punk bands and then um, I finished up later on I went to the museum school in Boston for a year in 85 and that's where I uh, met one of the guys from Information Society and I we were in a video class together I went for electronic music um, which really was you know electronic like you'd build the synths with soldering irons and you know, patch cord synths, you know, it was all analog back then. There were no such thing as digital synths and, you know, no computers or anything. You just had four, four or eight track studios that we were all working in. But, you know, in a lot of times, as you well know, you know, your, your limitations can be very creative strengths um, as well. Um, sometimes I think these days it's almost more difficult for young people because there's too much choice. Whereas um, you really had to work for it back then, you know, you had to like be in the right situation. Nobody, there, it wasn't everyone and their cousin didn't have a studio in their bedroom. They couldn't, it was too expensive. Yeah, for sure. And now just about anyone can make music. I mean, if you have an iPhone, you can pretty much make music. Um, Amanda, obviously well-traveled, obviously well-educated and also very cool that you still keep in touch with your uh, teacher from uh, back in college in Santa Cruz. Amanda, at what age did you realize uh, that music was it and that's what you wanted to do? I don't know, Cliff. I've just always known I was going to do music. Maybe I was six, I was seven, I was 10. I don't know. I don't think that musicians think like that. I think the question is really that music chose me. I don't really think I chose music. I've never looked at it that way. But I was just very lucky because information, so I was my 
first band that was signed you know we were tommy boy that had an album out on warner brothers and the first album sold over eight hundred and fifty thousand copies we had two top 10 singles in the summer of 1988 and that's what set me up for work very cool and yeah 1988 was a big year for information society as you said two top 10 hits uh what's on your mind also walking away amanda tell me a little bit more about information society and how you joining the band came to be. That is how it came to be. I was in this class in the museum school in Boston, and I made friends with this guy named Jim Cassidy. And then, you know, I was more interested in doing soundtracks and electronic, you know, music, concrete, and this sort of stuff back then. So we collaborate on a few things, I think. But anyway, we're just friends. And at the end of the year, he came up to me and said, hey, um, I'm in this band in Minneapolis, and you know, we just put out a single and it's gone to number 10 on the dance chart and billboard. Do you want to come on tour with us for the summer? And I said, okay. And I went out there and ended up staying three years getting a gold record. <laughs> Very cool story. And that single that you're talking about that went to number 10 on the dance chart, uh, name of the song was Running. Uh, Amanda, that song was not sung by Kurt Harlan, who would later become the lead vocalist for Information Society, but it was sang by a guy by the name of Murat Kuna. Can you help me with the pronunciation of his name? Meetot Konar. Yes, that is it. Thank you very much. Um, do you know where he is today? No, sweetie, because I mean, I met Meetot a few times. I mean, all of them, you know, Paul, Kurt, Jim, and Meetot, you know, they, all, they all were all local Minneapolis kids. You know what I mean? I was the only one coming in from the outside. I think they'd all gone to high school together, perhaps. And so I guess Meetot was just like another guy in the band. The band was really run by Paul, always. Paul Rob. Of course, we all collaborated on songs, but it really, you know, was Paul's baby. And he was always, regardless of who was the singer, the driving force business-wise and... Um, most of the tracks were his so that even whether it's running or what's on your mind, it's still Paul Rob. Gotcha. So you get invited into this band information society, which uh, was a pretty big band um, in the eighties, especially in the mid and late eighties. What was your mindset at that time, Amanda? What were you thinking um, once you got the invite to join the band? Well, I was just going to do it as a summer job and then go back to art school. I mean, I thought it was fun, but I was doing it mostly really to, um, I mean, I'd already played in some bands, you know, but they were just, you know, local kind of California things. So, I mean, it wasn't my first one, but it was the first real thing, you know, and certainly the first with the record deal. So all of that definitely was appealing. And I guess because um, I was happily in art school, but, you know, open to opportunities. I mean, I was already running the 8-track studio at the Boston Film Video Foundation you know, I had volunteered there as the general manager of the equipment room as soon as the year had begun. And I was always into putting myself in situations so that I was learning more about the recording. And to me, um, because of the music stuff, as you know, I started very young anyway. But um, the tech, the the recording, the, the gear, all of that side of it was new, to, very new to me. It took me a long time to learn. And of course... I mean, even looking back now, you know, whatever, it's just, you know, there, it was just, there were certain key people who, you know, taught me about that stuff. And the thing that was really fun, aside from being in the band with those guys, because the thing that we got, like, once you joined, that was really interesting was it was a really 
well, it's really the uh, it was abnormal completely, but a very unique uh, band experience in retrospect. It was all I knew, so I had nothing to compare it to. But you know, ninety percent of our audience was um, Puerto Rican and black, and most of the places we played were um, huge um, Latin or black discos in New York and Miami, and that's how we made a living for two and a half years. That's really cool. And uh, what years were you in the group? 85 to 88. Gotcha. Amanda, if you were to label information society, what would you label them as? Were they uh, freestyle, new wave, synth pop? What exactly was information society? Well, information society started before um, freestyle and all that. I mean, information society was um, three talented guys with some gear who wanted to be craft work. And, um, at, you know, they were living, but they were in the middle of the country, you know, not in some sort of hip urban center. You know, they were in the suburbs of Minneapolis and they took on board a lot of influences from New York street music and European synth pop. And that is obviously very clear in all of their music, if you ask me. You know, but the thing that was fantastic about it was just, I mean, the people involved, I mean, little Louis Vega was the uh, remixer on running. And then he worked at this club in the South Bronx. It was called the Devil's Nest that became our home away from home. That was in the very deepest, darkest part of the South Bronx in the mid to late 80s when New York was at the crack epidemic and homelessness and everything was going on. And we would drive in there every weekend to play a show to these people. We're the only white people within 10 miles, I assure you. And the only reason they let us in is because they like this song. They used to have big signs on the door that said, leave your weapons at the door. And you know, everyone would have to go through metal detectors. I mean, those clubs were rough. Like someone got shot at during one of our shows one weekend wow yeah no i mean it was you know it wasn't like suburban white kids playing to goth music you know what i mean it wasn't sure that at all crazy at all in any way shape or form yeah that's really interesting amanda and i guess the crowd that you described uh doesn't really surprise me when you look at information society uh especially with the song running it has a latin or freestyle type sound to it the song is danceable um, as a matter of fact, if you were to go onto YouTube and read some of the comments under songs by Information Society, uh, a lot of what you'll read is uh, greatest freestyle song of all time, long live freestyle. Um, there's a lot of mentions uh, of freestyle with Information Society. What's your take on that? We were really much, much, much more a, considered a part of um, Latin hip hop. Than freestyle, to be honest. I like freestyle. I like all of it. Um, absolutely. But um, we were not really equated with that it, during those years. Um, you know, but it was great to be on a label with Africa Bombada and De La Soul and, you know what I mean, and all of those um, really hip guys. But, you know, I mean, then I went from there and, you know, joined, went straight into the Golden Palominos, which of course had Bill Laswell as the bass player who had recorded with Bombada as well. So, you know, as a New Yorker, those worlds kind of came home for me full circle at that time. And then I spent the next three years doing four albums with the Golden Palominos. Yeah, we'll talk about the Golden Palominos in just a bit, Amanda. 
Um, you mentioned the label, that label that you guys were signed to at the time was Tommy Boy Records. I guess Tommy Boy at that time was maybe a, uh, I don't know, maybe kind of a hip hop label or a Latin freestyle type label. You mentioned Africa Bambata. You also mentioned De La Soul. Other acts signed to Tommy Boy through the years, uh, Naughty by Nature, Force MDs, Digital Underground, House of Pain, and a uh, pretty big freestyle group back in the day, uh, TKA, Amanda Let's move to 1988, 39 weeks on the dance chart. Amanda, uh, it was a huge song. Of course, I am talking about What's On Your Mind, Pure Energy. Tell me about that song and that experience of having that song. It was fun. It was, It was. I mean, you know, it was intense, you know, to watch the whole thing grow and to get um, acquainted. You know, by then we had been picked up by Warner Brothers, which of course is why it had gotten, um, you know, on MTV to begin with, but we were still very much low man on the totem pole, you know, back in those days, there were a lot of, you know, bands that were favorites, you know, and others that were not, and we were definitely not, um, is at the Warner offices, but it kind of was like by accident that, um, we happened at all, you know, we didn't have a huge budget and we had a small budget for a video, but we had a very creative, um, manager named Scott Mino, who hired a very creative video director who um, was doing like creative shorts for MTV, but still had yet to make his mark in the world named Mark Pellington. He's gone on to do a lot of movies and things actually, but we were his first video. And that first video, I think is what made this, made the single happen nationally. Um, you know, because up until then, we were really an urban phenomenon, New York, Miami, L.A. Nobody else really, you know, wanted to know. And then um, all of a sudden, um, I think it was, you know, the, the style and the fact that it was low budget, you know, it was a very colorful. There was a lot of movement, a lot of fun in the video, but it wasn't, you know, expensive. It was cardboard and us running around in a room, you know what I mean, instead of yeah. um, lots of special effects or something. So I don't know, you know, I mean, it was, it was a combination of things. And we had a great A&R guy, Kevin Laffey, and, you know, and then, you know, because he, he, MTV picked up the video, we started being in heavy rotation. And that's when we started climbing the billboard chart. And then that's kind of how we learned how that works or worked. And it doesn't work like that anymore. None of this even exists. It's ancient history, but that was the system back then. And then, um, you know, every major head, I'm sure they still do this. They have a certain amount of money every week. They go, who's going to get the promo money? And they divide it up for which bands and for X amount of weeks, we were the lucky number to get the, the money so that the stations would get paid so they would keep playing it so that we would climb the chart. And, you know, it's, it really was all payola and stuff like that. Yeah, man. Good old payola. I'm, uh, I'm familiar with that from my radio DJ days, Amanda. Um, you mentioned the video, uh, interesting video, very 80s, uh, lots of bright colors. It features Kurt Harlan um, up in the camera quite a bit, a lot of slow motion involved. Uh, where was that video shot at, Amanda? In New York. Yeah, we were all in New York at that point. Gotcha. Any idea on what the budget was? I don't, to be honest, I really don't, but it wasn't big, you know, one day shoot, you know, we had a, you know, it was, it was all just very, um, you know, it was just all experimental, you know, but it's kind of, 
Like, I mean, I guess any everyone you talk to must say this, but you know, when you're like, there's a big um, transition, I guess, that everyone goes through from, you know, their innocence of not knowing the major label system. Exactly. <laughs> to kind of, you know, becoming, um, well, not cynical, hopefully, but at least kind of aware of, you know, the realities or the limitations of it. That's Yeah, exactly. And you're right. I hear about that quite a bit. Um, you know, you're not signed to a major label. You get signed to a major label. Uh, and then there's problems yes. that come from yes. being signed with a major label. You hear about it time and time again, bands get into bad deals and all that sort of stuff. Um, as information society, uh, did you guys experience any of that uh, yes. with your label? Yes, yes, that's right. But, but, you know, I mean, on the other hand, you know, I mean, it's all water under the bridge, but, you know, I mean, there's all of it so much politics. I mean, the record was never released overseas because Warner Brothers and Tommy Boy were having an argument over, you know, royalty rates in China or whatever the fuck, you know what I mean? This ridiculous stuff that always goes on too. So, I mean, it, to us, and Rich, I'm, you know, all of us feel this way, me and the guys, but you know what I mean? It's like, it, it to us, it's like what it could have been compared to even what it was kind of um, gets on our nerves to this day. But, you know, that's, life and that's a music industry for sure you know those things do happen and you know and it was it was big enough and I mean for me the thing I think that was good about it was it just kind of like it or lump it it set me up with some sort of visibility to just keep getting hired for different things not necessarily synth pop but you know mostly I've played in rock bands actually but I mean the only synth pop thing I can think I've done was, you know, a few summers with Tom Bailey. And you know what I mean? Other than that, it's really been all rock, rock and roll. Tom Bailey, of course, lead singer of the Thompson Twins. Uh, pretty crazy story, Amanda, about the song not being released overseas. Um, I guess because of that, you guys weren't able to tour uh, the world. But were you guys able to tour anywhere else other than just America? Except for South America, where they're huge, and they still tour there. That's the only place. Really? I'm not shitting you. It was unbelievable. Wow, that's pretty crazy. It's insane. <laughs> yeah, it really is, because, I mean, you got to imagine, if you guys are touring overseas, obviously the label is going to benefit from that right? as well. So, yeah, that's pretty crazy. Uh, Amanda, yes. do you still keep in touch with the guys uh, yes. from Information yeah, 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 Society? Yeah. They come to the first gig sometimes, and... If, you know, I see them regardless if they do or don't. I saw Kurt last time we played San Francisco, and I saw Jim comes regularly to Portland. He's an organic farmer up there. And J Paul recently moved from L.A. back to Minneapolis. He's living back home now, and I haven't seen him recently, but I'm sure I will. They're, they're you know, whatever. I mean, you know, we're all, we're all still friends. Very cool. Amanda, you had mentioned, uh, I guess, prior to joining Information Society or right around that time, uh, you were kind of into the punk music scene. When you get invited into this band, does it matter to you what the music is as a musician? Or is it that it's just music and I'll do it? Um, Information Society, I would say, is, you know, uh, a bit different than punk music. Did that matter to you? That's, it was time and place. But to me, Information Society is not that different, to be honest, because Kurt and Paul, all of them were, you know, I mean how they saw themselves. You have to understand, sweetie. It's like, how old are you, Cliff? 46. Right. So you have to understand, you're talking about people who are 12 years older than you are. And to them, the music that they were influenced by was, you know, craft work. And then by the time I joined, I mean, 
you know, to, they listened to, Paul was very into beats and he was a great drum programmer. So he listened to a lot of black music. And then um, Kurt was more into like Bauhaus and Love and Rockets, Brian Eno, maybe some Kate Bush. Gotcha. So, you know what I mean? It's like nobody was, you know, there weren't these huge divides. I think since then to your generation, it looks like there's were these huge differences, but you know what I mean? We got people with Mohawks at our shows and vice versa. It wasn't so divided back then. I see. And the reality, you know, is that's been something that Billboard has created since in the future. You know, back then there was only like two charts. Now you've got, what, 50? You know what I mean? It's It wasn't really like that and you didn't really feel divisive and it wasn't about um, being, you know, um, you know, a part of th this or that for me, it was about being a keyboard player. First of all, how many punk bands have keyboards? Not very many. So, I mean, the reality of anyone getting hired by a punk band in 1980, well, you know, I mean, you know, later on, some of them brought them in when they started to have pop hits. But in their inceptions, I mean, whether it's Susie and the Banshees or the Furs or, you know, none of those bands had keyboard players. And 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 I think what you're talking about, what I would call more as hardcore. Yeah, exactly. Whereas there was always this element of punk that was extremely hardcore and wanted to just bash each other in the mosh pit and stuff like that. And that, sure, they didn't like information society and we didn't listen to a lot of hardcore either but not because there was any sort of animosity it just wasn't to our taste i mean i certainly know plenty of people who did and i certainly went to billions of hardcore shows when i lived in san francisco went to bad brains and flipper and you know i mean it was incredible we'd go three times a week it was the amount of music live music that was available has never been seen again in both you know on both coasts it was absolutely incredible very cool. Yeah. And especially now with uh, COVID pretty much sucks. Um, Amanda, so you're in Information Society. Let's move on. Uh, you then join the Golden Palominos. Yeah. Uh, what happened with Information Society? Why did you leave? I just um, left. I got the offer for the Golden Palominos, which was my favorite band at the time. So I just went and started... Um, literally came off the plane with the information society and went in the studio and started an album with Anton and Bill and Nikki. Gotcha. Anton being Anton fear, who was the uh, drummer and a founding member of the golden Palominos, uh, Amanda golden Palominos, definitely an interesting band. How would you describe, uh, the golden Palominos? Okay. Um, in, let's see, it's a hard one. It's a, very eclectic. It was a combination. I think of really kind of, best of underground uh, New York, East Village um, of the uh, early to mid eighties. By the time I came into it, they were still recording, but were no longer um, a strong touring ensemble as they had been. But literally, I mean, the the thing I love about the Palmines is, is the diversity. Each album is almost an old, its own world. The first one is John Lydon and Arto Lindsay. And the second one is, um, Michael Stipe and um, Jack Bruce and Peter Blake Vad. And the third one brings in all of them still, but adds Sid Straw to the mix and um, Bernie Worrell on keys, Carla Blay on keys. They're my heroes from way back. So to be allowed to play in that group was a big deal as a New Yorker. Sure. How long were you a member of the Palominos? 
I, I was I was only in it till around ninety two ninety three was the last album I recorded with them. Um, okay. That, uh, but the first two I co wrote with Anton, so I was heavily involved in the studio with him and Bill and another uh, Bill Laswell, meaning Bill. The two of them had kind of come up as a rhythm section together throughout the ranks of New York. Um, Bill. Laswell was hired by Herbie Hancock to produce Rocket. Very cool. Which was his big hit back in um, the early 80s and kind of put him on the market for, you know, the charts. It was his first drum machine thing. And Anton was the drummer. So the two of them toured with uh, Herbie Hancock together and then they came back to New York and they were very much of kind of like the jazz and black collective mindset. Um you know, Bill went on to work with everybody under the sun, really, but he was Anton's best mate. So he was also the bass player in the Golden Palatine. <laughs> That's really cool. <laughs> yeah, it was pretty lucky, too. Absolutely. And you'd have people like Richard Thompson and Mick Taylor come in to do a guitar solo. Wow, that's awesome. It was, I was 26 when I started. That's really cool. Uh, of course, Mick Taylor, former member of the Rolling Stones. Uh, Amanda, do you have a favorite song by the Golden Palominos? Well, you know, one of them, I'd have to say it was, you know, it's a shame. I mean, I love all the ones I did with Anton. I think my favorite one from for the from the two albums that I co-wrote with him would be a song, When the Kingdom Calls. Okay. That also does have um, some of those illustrious names on it, too. But, um, you know, really from... You know, I was so in love with the second and third albums that he did that was going on when I was in Information Society. And I saw them play first half, actually. And it was an incredible night. And anyway, then I got to meet Anton like a year later because an old friend of mine from Boston who was an engineer, Will Garrett, was working as the engineer for the new album. And he's the one who recommended me to join. Okay. Yeah, very and, cool. And Will and I are still friends too. And Anton and I are still in touch. I just got an email from him the other day. So, yeah, that's a whole other musical family. Good stuff. Uh, Amanda, I really like Boy, uh, sung by Michael Stipe uh, with the Golden Palominos. Uh, great song. What's your take on that track? Oh, God, brilliant. Uh, well, that album, seriously, Visions of Excess and, and also The Blast of Silence. Oh, my God. No doubt. With Matthew Sweet and Sid added to the mix of the rest of them are still on it, too. But, yeah, those two albums sold me on that band forever. And I think the way that he's got, like, five lead singers on each album is fantastic you know and they're the he always got the best people and they'd always work for him for free because they knew when they worked for anton it was going to be a quality product very cool so amanda we got information society first then the golden palominos you're in the golden palominos for a couple of years uh what band do you join after the palominos that was the 10,000 maniacs was um our time in eden i got the call to uh tour that um, album and um, they were huge at the time because they'd already had like five platinum records in a row so we were playing very big places and then a few months later we went back in the studio and did MTV Unplugged which went number one and that was the only number one I've ever played on was doing Bruce Springsteen's song Because the Night That's that was the only number one I've ever played piano on very cool. And yeah, Amanda, that was an absolutely, I mean, absolutely huge song back in the day, released in 1993. Amanda, 
uh, that song was all over the radio, right? Yes. Oh, my God. And, of course, for the listeners who don't know, um, the song starts off with you on the piano, and it starts off like this. Yeah, that's right. That's right. So cool, Amanda. And that's got to be pretty crazy uh, to look back on today. It is crazy. In retrospect, man, you just never know. You just never know. You know, it's like, you know, I think, um, you know, it's it's weird when you're young in rock and roll, too, because, you know, when you're in your 20s and 30s, you're still at that age where things are growing, you know, and you're still kind of trying to have hits and get somewhere and, you know, build it up. And so there is there was so much you know, pressure around um, that band at the time, only because they knew everyone knew that Natalie was planning to leave. She had already announced it to us, but it was a complete secret from the rest of the planet. So there was a lot of, you know, that was the la- their last time together. And so it was very emotional in a lot of ways. You, I mean, you know, I totally respect Natalie's decision to go solo. I mean, that's, you know, what some people want to do. She had already done it since she was, you know, very young. So, I mean, it wasn't like, you know, not understandable, but, you know, it was so big at the time she left. It really was at its peak, which is an unusual time for a lead singer to quit. Yeah, no doubt. How long were you in the Maniacs? Two years. Yeah, two years, um, pretty much. It was 1992, 93, and then 90, 93, we toured the MTV Unplugged thing. Well, first of all, we started January by playing at the, MTV Bill Clinton inaugural ball in January. That was our, we got to play there with, um, oh my God, that was insane. But I mean, what a night, right? It was like the, the Democrats hadn't been in for 12 years. We'd been through Reagan Bush. Everyone went fucking mental. Hollywood was there. I almost tripped over De Niro on the way to the ladies' room because I was wearing these huge heels. I couldn't see him anyway. He's short, but that's awesome. Um, it was like crazy. Like Soul Asylum was there. I remember Michael Stipe performed with us. It, I remember hanging out with the Edge and you know, from you see like those guys who there hang out. They didn't play though, but it was. You know, that was how it started. Then we went into the studio. We did the MTV Unplugged um, at Bearsville up in Woodstock, New York. Todd Rundgren's old place that's still there. But, um, of course, um, it was kind of thriving back in those days um, with all the big budgets from the major labels that were still around. And we were there for three weeks rehearsing in the barn, which was fantastic. And then we did the show and um, started touring and toured basically from April through September. And then I think end of summer we finished up. Natalie decided that was that. And um, I remember I went back to Europe with her and a, and a violinist. We did a little promo tour that fall. Um, and then um, by January, I'd been talking to Carl because they were our last opening band for the end of the whole last two months of the Maniacs. Carl Wallinger um, and uh, decided to come over here and join them it was it's always sad when bands break up you know what i mean so you kind of have to move it's like a relationship you have to like move on to the next one (laughs) (laughs) time to move on and uh 
Time to go to uh, to the next thing, I suppose, right? Amanda's book of wisdom. <laughs> uh, that's funny. Sorry, Cliff. Anyway. It's all good. But, you know, seriously, I mean, you know, it's always like, oh, because, you know, you're doing the singing, live it. You know, you live with these people. You know, sure. It's 24-7, and then all of a sudden, boom, there's no, it's gone. That's it. Yeah, no doubt. I mean, that's got to be pretty tough. One day it's there, the next day it's not. Yeah, I can understand the uh, difficulties behind that. Uh, but how about the inaugural ball, Amanda? That's pretty cool, and that had to be pretty crazy. Yeah, my God, it was crazy. That's fantastic. I really like the story about you almost tripping <laughs> over Robert De Niro. That's a great story. Um, Amanda, so Natalie decides to call it quits. What's the mindset of the band at that time? Are you guys, all of y'all just kind of like, wow, this really sucks? Well, yeah. Well, everyone I think felt like it, it sucked, but they but we had been warned a year before, so you know what I mean. That's why I say it was a, it was an interesting year because it's kind of we were all privy to that knowledge uh, from the management, you know, um, and the whole band, um, the guys who had been with her, you know, since the very beginning was all original members. Um, they had just brought me in as an extra player. Um, so I wasn't replacing anyone's Dennis Drew was still there. I played what I played was a lot of um, Natalie's parts because she had played piano on a number of the albums and they had a texture where it was really a lot of guitar with organ and piano played two handed at the same time, two fisted. So Dennis did most of the um, organ stuff and I did most of the piano. That's how we divided that one up. And then a couple of string players, we had a horn section, you know, because we did, we're doing all the sheds that year. It was really, you know, it's like, you know, summer times, you know, playing out to what, five, 10,000 people, 20,000 sometimes. It was. Wow. That's a large audience. Yeah. Do you still see Natalie Merchant? I don't see Natalie that often. I, you know, we have, we have uh, conversations now and then, but, you know, she kind of really left the music industry. Um, like no one else who I've worked for. So, you know, kind of just, you know, she did those one or two solo albums while I was already in England with World Party at that point. But then she kind of, I think, she, you know, she's, she's had a daughter and she's very involved as a mother. She's back in upstate New York. But, um, you know, I mean, Natalie's a very uh, talented woman. I have a lot of respect for her. She just, I think, just really got sick of the touring. And she had done a lot of it from a very young age. I mean, I think they started when she was like 17 or something. She was quite a bit younger than the other guys. And, you know, I think she just had enough. Yeah, gotcha. And certainly makes sense. I can appreciate that. Uh, Amanda, from 10,000 Maniacs, you go on to join the group World Party, who back in 1986 had a pretty big song uh, with Ship of Fools. How was your experience of being a member of World Party? Yeah, no, I mean, you know, really good. I mean, I love World Party and I love Carl still. He's like my best buddy. But, you know, um, I ended up marrying the bass player. So I was married to the band for eight years, 10 years. And we toured a lot. And I also... Um, his name's David Catlin Birch. We're still very good friends, but he had already been in the band for Bang for the album that I had met them on touring. And then, you know, it became very uh, family where I was up in London and um, Carl had this fantastic place, sadly gone now called CV Studios. That was, um, it was the top floor of this um, warehouse building called John Henry's. It's a big um, rehearsal space for musicians. It's been there for a long time. But um, basically, he had he rented the top floor 
of this warehouse for like 25 years. That was our clubhouse until about two years ago. He just disbanded the whole thing and moved down to Hastings where he's built a new studio in his home. But back then his, um, his partner, Susie is also one of my closest friends. Like she was, you know, a couple of miles away, like raising the kids, he had two kids and, um, the band, we just all lived at the studio. That's actually pretty cool. For like years. Yeah. It was, it was like a, a musician's paradise. I had like drum sets and B3 organs and, you know, grand piano and 50 guitars. I mean, Carl's got more gear than God. He's got like a, was it a 48 track Cadillac desk that he, we had to have moved out in a, with a crane. I've got pictures. I was there for the move out. Wow. That's pretty wild. It was unbelievable, but it's now in Hastings. He's got it set up already in his new place. That's really cool. And uh, for the listeners who don't know, Carl being Carl Wallinger, who was a former member of the group, the water boys went on to form uh, world party, uh, Amanda world party, not a very big group, not a huge name, but I like World Party. Definitely good stuff. Great stuff. I mean, that's the thing. You know, it's like I've never, you know, sometimes you get lucky and you're in a band that's a great band that, you know, sells a billion copies every record. But, you know, a lot of great bands really have never gotten their due. And I think World Party is an example of that, really. But Yeah, I hear you. And I would agree with that. Uh, Amanda, you do your thing with World Party for a little while. Then you later move on to the Psychedelic Furs in 2002. Uh, how did you land that gig? Well, it was from um, <laughs> this guy who's um, named Ron Baldwin, who was uh, – he was – Richard's A&R man at Imago for the Love Spit Love years. And they became very good friends. And he's actually um, godfather to Richard's daughter, Maggie. Okay, I got it then. But um, and Ron, I've known, we were all at UC Santa Cruz together in 1981, 82. I've known Ron that long. And um, yeah, we were part of this musical scene that, um, you know, that was the band scene there. And then in Boston as well, he was there when I was at the museum school. And um, Ron recommended me. Very cool. So in a situation like that, uh, do you have to, um, I guess, audition or try out? Well, I mean, that's funny because I've never actually been to an official tryout like that in my life, to be honest. So I know, you know, I've I've kind of been lucky that way. I think part of it is because of, you know, I mean, all the gigs – I mean, when I look at it in retrospect, you know, I mean, a lot of every gig I've ever had is word of mouth. And um, some of the gigs you get because they like other bands you play in. So I think for Richard, um, aside from Ron telling him to hire me, uh, the selling card was World Party. That he's, he was a big Wallinger fan and he knew that Carl wouldn't hire someone who couldn't play. So he took the chance. And then the first gig was actually a one-off. Um, a 10,000 person one-off. We played a, the first gig was a festival in Buffalo, New York, Labor Day Festival, 10,000 people, 2002. And I guess I passed the audition. Yeah, obviously. So Uh, that's really cool. Um, Amanda, Richard, of course, being Richard Butler, founding member and lead vocalist of the Psychedelic Furs. Amanda, prior to joining the Furs, uh, were you a fan of that band? Oh, God, yes. Oh, yeah. They were my favorite band at university, actually. I mean, when I was, a, you know, a music major, studying classical and all that, you know, in the early 80s, I was very fascinated by the synth bands, of course, because being a keyboard player, no bands had ever existed without guitars before. It was fascinating. But 
my heart really was with the Furs, with the Banshees. Those are my first favorite bands, Early Cure, maybe a little Joy Division. Those were probably my four favorite bands in college. Very cool. And yeah, that's not a bad lineup. The Furs, uh, Susie and the Banshees, Joy Division, The Cure, uh, not bad Amanda. Amanda, do you happen to have a favorite song uh, by the Psychedelic Furs? I probably do, but I mean, there's, you know, there's a lot. I mean, there, this is the thing. I mean, playing with them 19 years, it's like with Carl, too. It's like there's no bad songs. I never get tired of playing their repertoire, even though there's only six, seven albums. You know what I mean? But it's like I just think that pretty much all of it is a very, very high quality. Of course, because of Time and Place, my favorite song, I'd have to say I have two. From the first album, Sister Europe, from the second album, All of This and Nothing. Those, but those have been my favorite songs since I was like 19, you know, it's 20 years old. So, you know, I think, you know, obviously they came out a few years apart from each other. But I was, you know, at that age where you are really, you know, it was new, it was exciting, things were being changed, you know, things were different, embraced. It was, it was an exciting time, really. For sure. On both sides of the Atlantic, I think, really. Very nice. Sister Europe, always been a uh, favorite of mine from the Furs. Um, Amanda, you've been doing this a long time. I'm going to assume that you could probably go on stage and play the keyboard or play the piano uh, with your eyes closed. <laughs> Do you practice at all? Well, I think I think any any musician on planet Earth who's been a band 19 years should be able to do that. Quite honestly, I don't think that's anything that's that that fanta- fantastically you know special to me. But um, it's you know I mean everybody we're all different. Everybody approaches the gig differently. You know what I mean? It's like we all come from very different backgrounds, but we come together to make that one special sound and that one special moment, which is only could be made by the six of us. That's the way I look at it. And it's like, you know, I mean, because I started, you know, I, I practice just because that's what I've always done. You know what I mean? It's like, I will sometimes sit down and play a first song or a Susie song or whatever, but no, I, you know, I feel like this year in particular has been a really um, interesting journey for me so far with, um, having this much free time and not being performing. This is the first summer in 19 years that I haven't toured. And it um, gave me pause for reflection. And to be honest with you, the first two months of the lockdown, it was so kind of crazy here and confusing. You know, we had a, we'd have the highest death toll in Europe here in England. So, I mean, it was very, very deep there for a number of months. So basically I just played the piano. Every morning I'd wake up, go downstairs and play the piano for like four hours just because what else is I going to do? There's no one to talk to. I'm here on my own with the cat. I can take walks in the countryside. But you're talking to an only child adopted who grew up in an apartment in Manhattan with a piano for company. Yeah. Do you see? You know what I mean? So sure. that's where I went for it. So when you say, do you practice? Of course, right now I'm going to say I pra- I've been practicing every day, but it's more practicing than I've been able to do for many years. And I've been really enjoying it. Gotcha. But you're not sitting around your house thinking to yourself, you know, I really need to practice how to play uh, the ghost in you or love my way. Oh God, no. But I don't, I don't, but I don't think any, any musician who's played in a band 19 years would. Yeah, absolutely. You know what I mean? But I'm just saying that a lot of musicians I know aren't like me. 
and go home and they don't play a note until we get to rehearsal next year. And I could name them for you, but I won't. That's funny. <laughs> <laughs> I hear you. Everyone's got their own vibe. You know what I mean? Yeah. You know, and, it, and there's no better or worse about it. You know what I mean? It's just, that's the way we approach it is different. Yeah, sure. I hear you. Uh, Amanda, do you get nervous before you take the stage? Yeah, well, you know, not so much with the, you know, we've done something that long. You get nervous more when it's gigs that like you, you know, that are intimate or that you haven't done that much. Like, that's why I like playing with different people, though, is because it's becomes of a challenge. You know, I mean, of course, I love playing with the furs. I always will. But, you know, it's been fun to like do the Susie thing for a year in between and, you know, to do the stuff with the Thompson twins. And then even the little acoustic gigs with Steve Kilby, to me, are very meaningful because, um, that's where I have to show my chops. Certainly. Especially if it's something that I haven't played before. So, you know what I mean? To me, it's about humility. And, you know, it's, you know, it depends on you and how you want to approach your music. But I've just always tried to make it as broad as possible. You mentioned Steve Kilby, of course, Steve Kilby, uh, lead singer of the group, The Church. Uh, you guys formed Kilby Kramer a few years back. You were traveling across America uh, playing little intimate venues, even playing in people's homes, which was very cool. Uh, Amanda, looking back at, say, I don't know, I guess the late 70s, uh, early 80s, mid 80s, uh, looking at synth pop, um, if you were to look at one band uh, and you were to give an award to maybe the number one synth pop band at that point in time, who would you give that award to? You know, I think Depeche Mode. Yeah, good call. Um, if you had to pick one band, I would say you'd have to give them, say that they're the winners because they're still playing stadiums. Yeah, they are. Uh, and no one else is. God bless them and power to them. Now, personally, I probably haven't heard a Depeche Mode album in 10, 15 years. Who cares? Whatever. I know what they're about. I knew the, the first two and I loved them. And, you know, they really did... Um, you know, push boundaries um, in ways uh, that I think are, it's kind of subtle, you know, within certain, they're not that they were the only ones. I think um, uh, Kilimanjaro, Julian Cope's first album. Yeah. Um, what was that? Teardrop, Teardrop Explodes. Explodes. Yeah. That was yeah. another one that was very, very kind of, wow, I've never heard anything like this before. Um, the first, uh, Eurythmics, but you know, these are all like we're talking like 1982, 83 here, you know what I mean? Really early ones. I'm talking about like their first one or two albums. After that, you know, that's when they became hits. You know, was it this is this is all kind of I love their period, I kind of most even early Thompson twins, like before they get famous. Yep. When they're not trying to write hits, when they're just kind of fooling around with the gear and doing so. Well, I mean, orchestral maneuvers in the dark, first album too. For sure. Right. You know what I mean? Like those are very kind of cool, influential, much more so than Pet Shop Boys came on a little later. They were really much more about the gay disco scene than a synth band. I mean, they have their own bands that are more in their category, more like Kinsock maybe. But, you know, that first wave of um, keyboard bands were just, um, just that, the first wave. And no one had really heard anything albums done just with keyboards before that i mean i was also a big you know euro fan of nina hogg and lena lovich you know that sort of stuff too but they weren't all synth it was some synth and guitar it was always a combination i think that i always liked playing in, in 
beds with guitars uh, better too, because I like the, the textures. I think the problem with synth bands live touring them can be just because so much of it's on tape, it's boring. The real the, and and they don't leave enough kind of to accident enough to accident because it's kind of impossible to be honest with you. Um, I, it's not, but it's kind of I like the element with the furs, you know, that even every, you know if it's played wrong, every marimba note is played live every show for ninety, you know, every little you know you're hearing what we're playing real time, and because that always has an edge to it, it and it does make you you know stay. Um, even if you've played it a billion times, you do have to, you know, focus because to me, it's about, you know, the audience and these people, however many hundreds, thousands, whatever have come and paid their good money to come see of course. us play. Well, they don't want to see So I mean, if we make a mistake now and then sure, they don't care, but you know what I mean? I believe there should be a certain, certain, you know, caliber, which is also why I do practice too. I do believe in that by the way. Good stuff, Amanda, and uh, well-explained, and definitely hard to argue against Depeche Mode. Uh, I saw those guys back in the early 2000s in New Orleans, and they were absolutely fantastic. Amanda, did you ever get into the shoegaze scene? Not really with even ever knowing it was shoegaze, but I do like that kind of music, now that I know that that's what it's called. But yeah, no, I like, you know, kind of psychedelia sort of swirly stuff. I mean, even pre-shoegaze, you know, I mean... We toured with the Happy Mondays about 10 years ago for a summer too, you know what I mean? Fun, That's cool. Great stuff. You know what I mean? Just like can't argue with that. There's a lot of great stuff in the in the early 90s, I think, that, you know, I wasn't really aware of at the time, but I kind of got after the case. In fact, because I was so busy with either the Maniacs or and then World Party. When you're in a band like that and you're on tour all the time, it comes, you do miss things. It actually becomes almost like a time tunnel. Yeah, I guess I never really thought about it like that, but I could certainly see that being the case. And uh, yeah, Amanda, Slow Dive uh, has always been one of my favorite bands. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. No, I mean, you know, I'm all for it. You know, my, I think we did some shows at my bloody Valentine. Very cool. Other. There you go. There's some great ones. There are some great ones for sure. Yeah, no doubt. Um, Amanda, this is going to be a little bit of a random question, but I've always been curious. Um, another one of my favorite bands is uh, the Dream Academy. Uh, this lady has toured with, uh, Morrissey, Julian Cope, Van Morrison. Um, she plays the piano. She also plays the saxophone. Would you happen to know, uh, Kate St. John from the Dream Academy? I don't. Okay. But you know, that's funny because someone else asked me that on an interview recently. So I wonder if there's some confusion out there online or something. I wish I did. That's interesting. You know, the female artists I've worked for, sadly, have been way, way fewer, obviously, than the male ones. But right. they've been mostly Natalie Merchant, Susie Sue, and Julie Cruz I've also worked with on and off over the years. She's still one of my closest friends. So Susie. But Julie and I, we had the same A&R man at Warner Brothers when I was in Information Society. And the Twin Peaks, their first album came out the same year as our album. And so um, I got to meet her. Our A&R man took us both to go see the Bulgarian Women's Choir at Lincoln Center the first time they played in the United States in 1989, 88, 89. And we've been good friends and work, we've worked together as well. I think Julie's an also another incredible talent that, kind of, you know, didn't really happen. Yeah, and you mentioned it, Amanda. Uh, Julie Cruz, known for her theme song, 
uh, from the TV show Twin Peaks, uh, which I believe came out in 1990, was only around for a few seasons. Uh, but I tell you what, Falling by Julie Cruz, I really like that song a lot. It's kind of got like a uh, almost like a dream pop type shoegaze type sound to it. A very cool song. Uh, Amanda, something that I wanted to circle back around to, you mentioned it at the beginning of the podcast, and that is that you're just a few miles uh, from Real World Studios owned by Peter Gabriel. Do you happen to know Peter Gabriel? I've met him, but no, I don't know him. Gotcha. You know, I mean, everyone in the area, you know, he's, you know, know, knows him as a figurehead because of, you know, parties or he runs a festival down here every year called WOMAD that's all world music, but very popular that all of us, well, most of us try to attend and stuff. But what he does is more than he himself is actually not here that often anymore. To be honest, I think his wife's ill and up in London, but he, what he did was build this place that was so gorgeous and um, residential that it attracted all of these other people, that it now gives us this community. And there's a lot of other people in the woodwork in Bath. I mean, not that, you know, they're like, you know, anything as interesting as Bristol, but Tears for Fears, Van Morrison, um, well, Robert Plant's lived down here for years. We did the Susie stuff out of Real World too, even though she's London, because we're only an hour from London. A lot of London bands come and move in for two weeks and do their recording or whatever. That's very cool. Uh, Tears for Fears. Yeah, man. Always been a favorite of mine. That's for sure. Um, Amanda, I've always been curious. How does this work? Um, So average folk go to work nine to five. You know, we get paid uh, every week, biweekly. Obviously, I'm not asking how much you make, but how do you get paid when you're in a band? um, How does that process work? Well, you know, that's a very good question. But, you know, really, I'd say for everything I've ever done that, you know, uh, with very few exceptions, it's always been, you know, uh, a fee that's arranged ahead of time, a weekly salary with per diem. Um, It's all arranged. And of course, back in the day, you get a check. Now it just goes into your bank account or whatever. But um, yeah, you know, that's like... Every, you know, all of these people I work for, they all have a manager and like they're in charge. The manager is the person you talk to about all of this. Um, there's kind of, uh, you know, you don't taint your relationship with the lead singers or the or even the other band members who are permanent, you know, original members with discussing this sort of stuff, um, especially here in England. Definitely. No, no, def- definitely not done. Um, you know, so it's. It's I've been lucky in that, you know, I've heard horror stories of people getting ripped off this way or whatever. I personally have not experienced any. So thank God I don't have any nightmare stories to tell you. I've always been, you know, paid. I can't say I've been paid what I thought I was worth, but I've always been paid what I agreed upon at the end, because I also believe there's a sliding scale for bands. You don't charge the same for the Rolling Stones that you do for sure makes sense. Julie Cruz, you know what I mean? Or something that's obviously not going to bring in um, those kinds of numbers. So once again, the personal comes into the equation and you have to really weigh in how much does that gig mean to you? And, you know, let's say you don't get what your normal fee is or what you think you should be getting just because the reality is a lot. Sometimes they just don't have it. Makes sense. And I appreciate the explanation. Um, Amanda, I know you have a home studio when we were trying to get this uh, whole uh, podcast 
scheduled, uh, we were going back and forth. You kept telling me that you were having long days in the studio and that you were in your home studio quite a bit. What exactly are you working on? Are you working on psychedelic first tracks or what exactly um, is your energy going towards right now? Well, I mean, I work on lots of stuff. I mean, I'm doing some tracks for Richard, but at the moment I'm mostly focusing on finishing up. I'm about 80% done with a CD I'm doing with Karin. Ah, okay. Very cool. Um, Amanda, I do not know Karin personally, but I know of Karin and I know who she is. Uh, can you explain to the listeners who Karin is? Yeah, yeah, of course. Um, well, you know, I never even know which last name to use. So let me try and explain. Karin Jensen, Halberg Lana. There's so many last names, you know, so, you know, she was um, Steve Kilby's partner. She um, co-wrote a song called Under the Milky Way, then got a solo deal at some point. But um, I think Steve produced it, but it didn't um, never really happen for her. So she kind of left the music industry at that point, had twins, moved back to Stockholm and um, married someone else. Um, and uh, anyway, has, um, you know, done all these other things and she's more of a writer she has a book coming out in the near future and so um a book of her poetry and so um yeah it's just a genre that i know you don't know about too but this is back just my own personal projects but on my band camp page there's another thing that i've always done that ties in more i guess with my education or upbringing is that i've done a lot of instrumental cds and i've done um a few with poetry. Um, I did one with uh, Carl Wallinger reciting William Blake's um, Songs of Innocence and Experience. And I did um, one of Richard actually to T.S. Eliot's Four Quartets, um, but I've just released an instrumental version at the moment because of copyright things, but that's up there too. And then um, my friend Blake, we haven't mentioned, do you know who Blake Lay is? Can I just do a short plug for Blake? Yeah, of course. Tell us about Blake. Okay. Because Blake has been my best friend since Santa Cruz. And he's the first guy who taught me how to use a four track and a synth and a Mac and many, many, many other things. And he's a, a genius. And um, he's uh, a sound designer and a composer and a music supervisor and um, a lot of things. But um, we did a CD together um, back in the early 90s called Winter Mass. That's up there too. But Blake, um, he did was most recently music supervisor on The Wire, on the series The Wire, and all of, he does all of, what's his name, David, um, that director, um, name escapes me right now, but he's doing all of his um, series, and he's just released a CD, a new CD on his own label that does a lot of instrumental work as well, called Illuminous Records. Blake Lay, look for him. He's cool. There you go. Nice little plug for Blake. I like it. Amanda, a really quick story for you. Uh, when you guys were here in Charlotte a few years back, we were hanging out after the show. Uh, you got a text message and you said something along the lines to me of, uh, oh, well, this is really cool. Karen uh, wants to get together and make music with me. Oh, wow. See? So pretty cool, right? Here we are a few years later and um, it's come to pass. There you go. Well, here we are. There you go. Well, this is this is the we're coming complete circle. Hopefully, we're not we're in the home stretch. We're not quite done yet. But um, yeah, no, it's been a you know it's been an interesting uh, 
trip, you know, and the, I think um, it was the perfect opportunity with COVID. Once I did manage to make it off of the piano downstairs and make it into the studio up here, start recording, it did take me a month or two. I have to say COVID really threw me at first and it really was just about piano. And as soon as that wore off, I just came up here to the studio and I've been focusing on car and stuff pretty much ever since. So I have another poem thing in the works too, which is an Allen Ginsberg poem called Howl that I'm doing a musical setting for too. Very cool. So the stuff with Karin um, is almost done, right? Yes, yes. We're getting there. We're almost done. It should be out by Christmas, hopefully by November. Very cool. We'll definitely be looking forward to that. Uh, Amanda, I want to circle back around to your current band, The Psychedelic Furs. Uh, explain this process to me. It doesn't matter what city it is, uh, Charlotte, Atlanta, Chicago, Asheville, uh, New Orleans, wherever it may be. Uh, you pull into that particular city. The band pulls into that city. You're performing later that night at whatever venue it may be. Once you guys pull in, um, what do you do? What is that process like once you pull in? Well, let's see. We usually pull in at noon, as you know, for for loaded, right? So I would, you know, usually getting up, get up, you know, whatever, get dressed for, for loadout. And then um, I'll pick up my phone and usually, like, you know, I'll do a thing, um, Where's the closest coffee shop? Yeah, there you go. <laughs> that's what I would do. <laughs> and then that's my first stop. I go to a coffee shop. Now, while I'm at the coffee shop, I'll do more searches. But I usually look for a museum. Okay. Very nice. And I, But but I look for parks. Not every city has museums, whatever. Right. I look for either green areas or museums that are within walking distance, a couple of miles of the venue. And I usually try to get a good walk in, like maybe, you know, five to seven miles by sound check. Wow, that's great. Which is around three, four o'clock. And um, this is all assuming the weather's okay. And, sure. You know, it's not sometimes days you're pouring down and you just sit on the bus. But if it's decent, I try to kind of get out and about a little bit. You know, sometimes I go with one of the guys, sometimes by myself. Nice. I like it. You get to get out and do a, a, a little bit of sightseeing. That's very cool. Um, Amanda, when the show is over, do you guys typically get a hotel or do you normally take off for the next city after that show? Usually we take off. Gotcha. If it's a, but if it's a day off, then we'll go into a hotel and, and, and travel the following night to drive again at Soundcheck at noon for the following city. I see. Um, That's a lot of travel and a, uh, a lot of moving parts. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's a lot of moving. It is. And, you know, um, but the, I you know I like a bus, you know, I think that's the other thing. The butlers and I were bus people, you know, we, you know, we don't mind going, you know, forever and ever. I sleep well on buses. There are people who don't and I truly feel sorry for them. You know, that's it's a big deal if you have trouble traveling and sleeping. Yeah, no doubt. That's got to be rough. I mean, you're doing whatever it may be, 25 cities, 15 cities, 12 cities, whatever it is. And if you can't sleep on the bus, yeah, that's pretty uh, That's pretty rough. Amanda, um, I want to meet and greet, man. I want to meet and greet with the furs. Never. Come on, Amanda. Hell no. Huh. <laughs> wrong man. Wrong man. They'll never do one. If you're waiting, don't wait. That's funny. And why are there no meet and greets with the psychedelic furs? It's just not their personality. Yeah. It's not, you know, I can't see it. I mean, the only time we've ever done a meet and greet is, you know, out West, sometimes we play these um, Indian casinos. And part of the contract is you have to meet the elders after the show in the green room and take your picture with them or, you know, shake their hand. But that's the only meet and greets we've ever done. 
That's pretty wild. Um, Amanda, let's get to it. Uh, Made of Rain, first studio release by the Psychedelic First since 1991. That is a long time. I love it. I think it's great. That is just my opinion. Uh, But tell all the listeners out there listening around the world uh, about Made of Rain. Made of Rain. Yes. Well, I mean, what should I say? I think it's a really, really well um, presented album. I think that Richard Fortas did a fantastic and difficult job of putting us together because even though we are, as you saw, pretty good and as a well-oiled live machine because we've done it so much, um, you know, the studio was a place that had never really been touched or, you know what I mean? So, I mean, that's part of why I like seeing what the church did, you know, and our experience wasn't like that at all. You know, it was individual and it was one-on-one more than as a group to keep finance down. But I think that it was actually a really a um, genius to have hired Richard to pull us all in because we all know him, we all respect him, we all like his playing, and he was Richard's guitarist for ten years, and he knows he understands the band, even though he's a bit um, younger than Richard. He he understands it at at, at, a, at a level that I think most producers wouldn't. Good stuff. And yeah, when you say he was Richard's guitarist for 10 years, uh, Richard, being Richard Butler, Richard Fortas, that's kind of confusing, but Richard Fortas, uh, former member of the group Love Spit Love, uh, has been a member of Guns N' Roses since 2002. Amanda, uh, Made of Rain, is that now currently available on all streaming services? I think so. I mean, as far as as far as far I've been um, told, you know, I know Rob keeps posting the singles up on, you know, um, Facebook and all that sort of stuff. So they, I think, you know, they're probably even on YouTube by this point, but um, definitely Spotify and all of those. And definitely, you know, definitely worth a look in, I think. Oh yeah, absolutely. If you're listening out there, definitely check out Made of Rain uh, by the Psychedelic Furs. It's fantastic. Um, Amanda, streaming. Uh, let's talk about that. Is streaming a good thing? Eh, not to me really, but you know, I mean, I, I think everyone should just, you know, we're all wading our way through this. There is no right or wrong answer to these. Personally, I'm kind of hesitant to get involved too heavily in the streaming world. Um, to be honest with you, I've never really used any of those services except Bandcamp. And the only reason I've used Bandcamp was because there's a a journalist in San Francisco who I respect very much um, on the side of the musicians. His name is Anil Prasad. And he said that it would be, that it's the only one that pays musicians fairly. So that's why I'm on Bandcamp. I don't disparage. I mean, if somebody wants to be on Spotify and Pandora and all of them go for it, you know, whatever, that's your choice. And I think, you know, a lot of musicians are on all of this because they feel they have to be. And, you know, that's fair enough. There's nothing wrong with that. But for myself, I'm more, it's not that I'm against the streaming. I'm more against the um, era of big corporations running the world. And I also don't have Netflix. I don't have Amazon Prime. I've never ordered one item from Amazon in my life. Wow. Okay. Yeah, I, I, <laughs> yeah, I certainly can't say the same thing um, in regards to Amazon in my household. But Amanda, I completely get your stance on that, and uh, I appreciate it. Um, there's another plug right there that we can plug real quick. Check out Amanda Kramer on Bandcamp. Uh, Amanda, a few more questions for you, then I'm going to let you get out of here. Um, give me your take 
on Michael Jackson. <laughs> Michael Jackson, God bless him, right? Oh, gosh. Well, I mean, I think, you know, absolute genius. What a performer. I mean, I was, well, I feel like, you know, he's only a couple years older than I am. So, I mean, I remember, like, you know, being in kindergarten, the Jackson 5, like being, they were just the the coolest people i mean to a five-year-old i mean maybe i wasn't that maybe i was six or seven but like the jackson five were big on the turntable at the little red schoolhouse i can tell you that much and i was very very young but you know um i think that michael uh, was you know a tra- i think child stardom in general is a tragedy i think he's a case of that but i mean you know he's a, probably if not the greatest, one of the five greatest entertainers of the 20th century. Agree, Amanda. Uh, with Information Society, you have ties to the Minneapolis-St. Paul area. A guy obviously from that area would be Prince. What do you think about Prince? Prince, I would say similar for different reasons. You know what I mean? His output was so unbelievably incredible. And he, I mean, it, and as opposed to Michael, who was mostly just a performer, and Prince was a consummate musician's musician. He could play everything himself. He, you know, he was great at all of it, and the dancing, and the performing, and that is, um, and he did it with depth and with style, and you know, and kept changing genres. And I mean, absolute mastermind, absolutely. I mean, he's one of Carl's favorites for sure. Yeah, all-around incredible musician and a uh, another guy that I've seen perform uh, in concert, and he was fantastic. All right, Amanda, here we go. Uh, there is two concerts in town tonight, right? But you can only go to one. Uh, those two concerts are the Lemonheads and R.E.M. Who do you go see? I would probably – ooh, that's such a hard one. I mean, I've seen both of them many times, but – you know, it, it's that's almost like a trick question, though, because REM has broken up and you couldn't see them. Uh, or if you could see them, it would, might only be that one time. So I would only for that reason, I would pick REM, not because for lack of love for the Lemonheads. On the other hand, the Lemonheads would probably be a more intimate venue, which might be a better show. There you go. A very safe and uh, diplomatic answer from Amanda Kramer. I like it. <laughs> they both be great shows. Those two are pretty hard to choose, though. Yeah, for sure. And I've never seen REM live, but I have seen uh, the Lemonheads a few times. And uh, yeah, Evan Dando uh, does a great job. I like those guys a lot. Um, Amanda, it's no secret that my favorite band of all time uh, is the church. I love those guys. Uh, you lent your musical talents to their last album, Man, Woman, Life, Death, Infinity. Uh, how was it working with the church? Well, that well that was fun just to be in the studio with them for that one album. It was really interesting. I mean, it was really very diplomatic and democratic. And I, you know, I couldn't believe how fast and well they worked together. That's really rare for a band that's been together that long, seriously. I mean, I'm sad that, you know, Peter's leaving, unfortunately, but, um, you know, things unfortunately do always seem to evolve in this business. But, you know, the other thing, you know, it was, it was really fun. It was like the first time since this kind of the um, world party days that 
I had kind of been in that, you know, environment where like you get up in the morning, you drive, it's, it's lockout, it's just you. And it was kind of that kind of studio. It was this place in Sydney. I can't remember the name, but it was lovely. And it was kind of like a hangout. You know, it wasn't like a big pristine place. There was no receptionist or anything. It was like us and the engineer and the toys. And that was it. And then sometimes Tim would take Steve upstairs and record him doing vocals separately while Peter or Ian were working on guitar sounds and it was I really really had a lot of you know incredible respect for them they're very talented gentlemen all of them yeah for sure always been a big fan of the church of course Tim being Tim Pauls the drummer um Ian Ian Hogue the guitarist and Peter Peter Coppis uh who was no longer with the band uh the other guitarist at the time as well um Amanda give me your take on the 80s, not only the 80s, but also give me your take on, because I know you were into the punk scene um, in the 80s. Uh, also give me your take on 80s punk music. Oh, dear. Well, I mean, the 80s were my 20s. I was born in 61. So I think that I look at the 80s a lot as my youth. You know, I don't think of it as the 80s. as You know what I mean? I think of it as what I did in my 20s. And it was an action-packed decade for me personally, for many reasons, personal and musical. But um, uh, I think that uh, the 80s was uh, the last time that, you know, that popular music was quite interesting, actually. Agreed. That, um, people were quite uh, kind of allowed to um, still in their tiny ways stretch the boundaries you know that of what a single was or this or that you know um and i think that all of those that those um first punk bands that first wave really uh broke open music in a very positive way um and not because of their uh, playing or musical ability, but I think what made the punk music so interesting to me was the fact that they weren't all musicians, that a lot of them were artists and art students. And this gave rock and roll a very visual um, aspect. And that's how I've always looked at um, artists like the Furs or the Banshees, to be honest with you, is they created their own aesthetic. They invented themselves. In, in a way that that had never been seen in in on stage in rock and roll in terms of bands, they might have borrowed from you know Susie borrowed from maybe um, things from the nineteen twenties or you know whatever Richard of course obviously factory with Bowie and Brian Ferry whatever, but they really are unique voices of their generation and I think that is why they will make it in the time capsule. They are totally unique in themselves. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I, I would go ahead. And that's what I that what I I kind of I'm not saying it's not out there, but it's sort of that's what I'm lacking. What I'm not finding in popular music now. Yeah, I was just going to say that I totally agree with you. Um, and as far as the music goes, uh, I believe that it's out there. I've found some good stuff. You just have to search for it. Um, Amanda, let's get to some plugs. Anything out there that you want to plug? No, I mean really just the. Um, I guess, you know, on my own you know, more instrumental level, the plugs of Blake and Karin, because that's who, um, you know, I'm going to be um, working with for the next two projects with Blake Lay out of New York and Karin Jansen Halberg Lange, the poet. Wow. There you go. There you go. That's a uh, that's a mouthful for sure. Um, Amanda, uh, Facebook page, Instagram, any social media platforms, uh, that you want to throw out there? 
Sure. Yeah. I guess it's Amanda Dot Kramer. I had to go have the doc because someone had already taken it, I guess, all together. Gotcha. But um, but you know, once again, it's in its lead to the band camp page, and it's also, I think, pretty connected to the furs as well at this point. Very cool. And Amanda, I follow you on Instagram. All right, here's the deal. If you're looking to follow Amanda, especially on Instagram, all right. Don't expect to see any pictures of Amanda or at least <laughs> or at least very few, okay? But you will see pictures of uh trees, of cats, right? Of the countryside. You will see those types of photos, but not many selfies, that's for sure. Well, you know, that's so funny you say it, but I never even think about it. It's so funny, you know, the whole I'm just not of the selfie generation. I do put up once in a while, but I do, you know, the only time I usually take selfies is if I'm on tour. You know, like you're on the bus or, you know, you're in the venue, you're by your keyboard. But, you know, like just take selfies in my bedroom or something. You know what I mean? I'm just not of that generation. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Hey, look, I hear you. I mean, I can probably count on one hand how many selfies I've taken through the years. Amanda, last question and then you are out of here. Um, if you weren't doing music, if you weren't involved with music, what do you think you would be doing? Well, once again, that's really hard to say. So I was only to music, but I would love to do, I mean, anything in the arts, to be honest. You know, I have a huge respect for um, painters and sculptors and photography. And I've always um, admired those who have, you know, great talents in these areas. I mean, I'd be happy just even, you know, working at a museum if they didn't think I was talented enough. But I just love being surrounded by it. To me, concert halls and museums, venues these are my churches where they have music and art and i can just have a moment to reflect on the insanity of our lives <laughs> that's funny but yeah amanda i hear you insanity is a fantastic word for it amanda we are done once again for everybody listening check out the new psychedelic furs album uh, made in rain check out amanda on Bandcamp. And also start following Amanda on Instagram at Amanda.Kramer. Uh, Amanda, thanks again for coming on the show. Really do appreciate you taking time out of your day to talk to me. Your stories were fantastic. Any final words? Thanks, Cliff. I really appreciate that. It's been wonderful talking to you this evening. Thanks so much for asking me to come on the show. I'd be more than happy to come back anytime. Thanks again. Awesome. You are welcome. Uh, let's do it again sometime in the future. Guys, I mentioned it at the beginning of this podcast. I am currently looking for sponsors. Uh, if you like my podcast and would like to support me, become a sponsor. Let's work something out. Shoot me an email at info at beingfamouspodcast.com. That's I-N-F-O at beingfamouspodcast.com. Hope everyone enjoyed my conversation with Amanda Kramer. I will talk to you guys on the next podcast. Peace. Peace.